Welcome everyone to KikiTV.live and welcome to my expert event. And today I'm so happy to be sitting down with Laura M. Gates. And Laura played an incredible role in my life, uh, opening up a whole new um, system and pathway to be pain-free. And so I'm really indebted to Laura for that and for the beautiful work of Hannah Somatics. I just want to tell you a little bit about Laura before we get started. She's a certified Hannah clinical somatic educator, practitioner, practitioner and trainer. And um, she's a teacher, a practitioner of clinical somatic technique independently and with ES International Training Team. She works with clients, students of all ages, backgrounds, and fitness levels. So somatics is for everyone. She's passionate about helping people move well, away from pain, tension, and old habits, both physical and emotional, and giving them effective self-care tools that we can use for a lifetime. She's a former professional dancer and dance teacher. She has an MFA in dance from Bennington College, a very highly regarded dance program for many, many decades. And um, as I said, she's a certified somatic educator and a trainer at Essential Somatics. And she studied kinesthetic anatomy with master teacher Irene Dowd. She's also a visual artist and a member of an international training team. And you can learn more about Laura at lauramgates.com. And actually, I really love Laura's website for how she explains somatics in a way that we can all understand it. Laura, welcome. I'm so happy that you're here. And um, if there's anything I left out of your bio that you'd like to add as we get started, you please go ahead and do that now. Um, you did a great job. That's the, that's the short version of the bio and that's just fine. I'm sure, you know, other things will come up as, as we talk. Really happy to be here and um, I really enjoy, I watched you last week and I love the way you're a host for your, your programs and a thank treat. You and thank you for inviting so many guests today. So Laura, I have a background coming out of dance and very physical theater from you know, really training in the late 70s and in college in New York um, in the 80s. And I encountered yoga and Pilates and Alexander and Feldenkrais and what was to become gyrotonics, what was called Horvath technique back in those days or yoga for dancers. And I never encountered somatics, but it was there all along. So and when I finally encountered it, just in the last few years working with you, it absolutely changed my life. And so tell me how you were introduced to somatics and how the somatics developed and then why you think it's a little off the radar and how can we get it on the radar because your commitment and my now my commitment and I'm sure commitment of every somatic practitioner is to help people move with joy and ease and to have bright, you know, vision for their mobility unrestricted futures. So share with me about somatics and how you got involved and how it developed. And 
Um, I first ran into Tom Hanna, who developed this work, the, the late neuromuscular pioneer, Dr. Thomas Hanna. Um, and I read one of his books, considered kind of the primer, uh, Somatics. And, um, and I got quite curious about what I was reading. And I thought, if this is possible, I need to know about it. And uh, that, was, um, that was in the early 90s when I ran into the work. And then I was a dance teacher at the time. And um, I froze up my hip teaching dance. It's kind of hard on your body. It's about the students, not you. And anyway, I. I found a practitioner of this work a couple of counties over from me in upstate New York, where I was at the time. Um, and so I went to him, Dave McDougall, this is, is his name, a wonderful practitioner, now lives in Saranac Lake. Um, and just, you know, in a few moments, he took my frozen range of motion in my hip and gave me back 100% range of motion with no pain, no stretch involved at all with this interesting feedback with his hands and gentle motion. And I, as I was feeling this, <laughs> this you know, about, a, it took about five or 10 minutes for this transformation to happen. I went, whoa, this is possible. I immediately know I'd be a practitioner of this work. I was uh, so amazed by the, the gentleness, but the power and effectiveness of the work. That was the hands-on work. Uh, and then later I invited him to our dance studio. He gave us a taste of, um, some of the movement practice, the solo work, uh, and all the teachers loved it. I, I immediately incorporated lots of it into my dance teaching as much as I understood. But I knew I'd be a practitioner of the work and some years later, uh, life gave me that chance. And so I trained in Massachusetts. And then um, I graduated in 07 and um, I was working mostly in New York City at that point and my colleague, um, Martha Peterson, who's the director of Essential Somatics. Uh, she was creating her program then um, with the goal of improving the curriculum and just taking the work up a couple, a couple of notches in terms of the training. And, and I joined her and uh, we've been taking this work to the world. Um, so our institution for teaching ed is really you know, traveling too. So we have graduates in Australia, the United Kingdom, Canada. I'm gonna pause you one moment. If someone's mute is not muted, I'm just gonna be sure that you're muted so we can uh, have a good, clean audio. Okay, thank you. So yes, okay. I know you're traveling all the time. Well, except for right now, of course, because it's COVID time. So our entire community has taken our work um, online and I would say uh, successfully, we're getting good results in our online classes according to the feedback we're getting from our students. It turns out that to teach online really is a, a not only not only a, a, a decent possibility, it's quite a good one. It's an effective tool uh, even there. And no, we can't do the hands-on work yet. No, we can't be in person with people, but there's, there's just a lot we can do it. And uh, I have found the same in my practice, working with wellness coaching and yoga coaching online. And I think what we'll find is that many people prefer it because their kitchen is right there. Their kids are right there. They're, so they're, they're not say commuting and in the car. And I think it's a silver lining that we had to move online because really we know now that it's effective and we can reach more people. Well, as far as spreading the word and, and getting this out there, which all of us involved in this, you know, this is our passion is to get it out there because 
it, it's it's a missing piece in mainstream medicine and in my opinion there's so much um, so much help that come to, can come to someone with chronic pain or injury uh, all different kinds of issues can be addressed by it effectively it's non-invasive uh, it's really good really effective and um, someday you know I hope it will replace some surgeries and other things that absolutely well I know from having chronic pain and I'm just curious for you you're a dance teacher you know you have to be in the classroom you have this frozen hip there is a psychological and emotional doom that can fall over the mind and really dark in the future did you have you know feelings and emotions about what was in store for you in the future you're a professional dance teacher um, yes, I'd, I'd say even more so um, for, uh, I have a scoliosis, a, I would say a medium to severe scoliosis. I did a whole dance career with it, and um, that was always a great source of discomfort. Um, and it's only now, you know, working with the somatic techniques that late in my life that I have relief from the feeling of compression in my spine, from the feeling of like a captured tight rib that, you know, won't take a deep breath, that's, that isn't there anymore. And that, I tried lots of things for my scoliosis. Um, I could expect my back to go into crisis several times a year when I was dancing professionally and when I was teaching as well. And, um, and I only wish I'd had these tools um, handy uh, during those days when I was challenging my body a lot. But um, but I work with dancers often. I understand their needs, um, and they love it. Of course they do. It, of course. And athletes of all kinds, right? It makes your body smart. It gives you more control, sensation. It's a way to take pain away, care and repair tools that are, you know, the best. It also is about injury prevention because you're making the body smarter, more coordinated, the body sensing itself, the brain more connected with the tissue. So that has to be... Um, useful for nearly everyone, but especially people demanding a lot of their body. Yes, and what I felt was that I've, I was, I've been returning and I've returned to my original developmental movement, which is innately intelligent. <laughs> and so there's a real freedom in being able to move like a child, move like an exploring, um, you know, young person, and a lot of the, the fear around movement goes away because when we have pain, we suddenly minimize our life and say, well, I can't pick that up because I'll tweak my back or hip. Well, I can't go on that hike or I can't travel on that airplane or walk through that giant airport. I mean, there were so many ways that we shut our lives down because of pain and to have these somatic rebirth is extraordinary. So tell me how the somatic work developed and who is Thomas Hanna? How did he develop this work? What were his influences? Great. Um, yeah, Tom Hanna developed this work uh, on the shoulders of a number of other somatic pioneers through, you know, through a century or, or more. Um, uh, he himself was a, a philosopher, a philosophy professor, and he was he had a real passion, passion and fascination for for human potential, and uh, and really curiosity about neuroplasticity before it was a buzzword. Absolutely. And uh, and he 
he found he found uh, read about Mo Moshe Feldenkrais's work. He, he actually coined the word somatics, um, but there are many other uh, somatic pioneers that belong under that umbrella. Feldenkrais being one of them, and he heard about what Feldenkrais was doing and uh, actually hosted his first workshop in the U.S. And he became, Hannah became a Feldenkrais practitioner for many years. Um, and, and Feldenkrais had also borrowed from some of the early, uh, earlier somatic pioneers like Elsa Gindler, uh, F.M. Alexander and generations before him, um, who had, were all kind of on this quest to figure out, you know, what is the human brain nervous system? What is it, its potential for change? If bringing awareness, you know, employing awareness and listening and sensing uh, into the mix, could that change muscle function? Could that improve quality of life and uh, muscle and motor function? Um, and then he also, he also looked at the studies on stress from Hans Selye. That's right. Which, who's the great, you know, today we all, everyone knows, we might not know precisely what it means. We understand that stress makes everything worse. <laughs> well, what we would call distress makes everything, you know, if someone has an illness, we want to reduce stress. We're all locked in the house on a quarantine. It increases our stress. And so really the research leader into what is the stress response and how it harms our health is Hans Selye and Tom, Thomas Hanna continued that work of Hans Selye to use the stress response towards freedom of movement. Yeah, Selye was actually, uh, he was sort of the beginnings of that understanding of the effect of stress on the body and and um, the adaptive response, and uh, and he was actually nominated for Nobel prizes, I think, seventeen times for his. He was an endocrinologist, Hungarian Canadian endocrinologist. Yeah, pretty cool guy. Really developed some great stuff. So yeah, the, he, that was the beginning of some really great neuroscience uh, and understanding of how how humans work. Um, so yeah, Hannah was fascinated by that and really based his work on that. And he. And firmly on the shoulders of Feldenkrais, there's a lot of Feldenkrais in our work, but he had some ideas of his own, Hannah, and he developed some techniques which dominate our work and set it apart from other somatic modalities. Um, they're certainly our cousins, and they're gentle and wonderful, um, but uh, the reason I chose this work is because of some of those things that differentiate it from, from the others. One of them uh, is... Um, that it has a movement practice that we, we hand those tools to our clients and students, knowing that they're gonna use these techniques, keep going with them, and the more they use them, the more skilled they'll get at their own, their own somatic skills, sensing themselves, you know, bringing their, their body online for their brain and gaining control and sensation and taking away pain and all the wonderful things that uh, somatics can do. Um, and what I, like about it is when we take these we do these take-home tools we could we don't actually have to get down on the floor and clear a lot of time if i'm you know running down some subway steps and i sit on the subway and i can feel my amnesia coming up well just right there on the subway in the tiniest way or in an airplane seat or wherever i am i can implement 
the somatics and I can come out of that, what would have been falling into a horrible old pain pattern, I, I have the tools to bring myself out almost invisibly. It's like my superpower. Um, I'm like Clark Kent with my cape on underneath, like, wait, relax, don't worry. I have the tools to get out of this. So I think this is an essential part of the somatics is that the, the practitioner, the participant is, um, is given this, this wealth and in a very simple and effective way, they can maintain and improve their mobility and their movement uh, all alone. Um, so yeah. that's really wonderful that that's also part of the system. Because for those of us that have been in pain, we've gone to acupuncturists twice a week. We've gone to chiropractors, you know, every single week um, for years and years and years. And somatics imparts these tools and this awareness and cultivating this awareness that it's something that we can access ourselves. Yeah, yeah. another thing that sets it apart really is this um, technique that Hannah developed and it dominates our work because it's so good, which is pendiculation. And um, pendiculation, the original word pendiculation was borrowed from a veterinary term. And it means, the, the original version of a pendiculation means that thing that cats and dogs do 40 times a day and humans do at least a couple times. Right. Exactly, they do that yawny, delicious kind of stretchy right. yawn. A yawn is a pendiculation, right? right? And it's nervous system resetting itself, contracting some muscles gently but deeply, melting them. Notice, notice the brain doesn't drop the release, it kind of melts it. And Tom Hanna took that idea, really something that the brain nervous system already knows how to do quite well, and he began to turn it into a fully voluntary, deliberate movement technique. And, and that's the pendiculation that we, that's what we do. And the hands-on work, which gives feedback to the movement back in the contractive phase and the releasing phase, that specific touch that practitioners learn um, that's called assisted pendiculation, and it helps it helps the um, the client's brain go even a little deeper with the the help of of some specific touch. It lets you get deeper, find things that you know, find a blind spot, release something that was harder to get to on your own. Um, so that's the beauty of the hands-on work. But um, but like I said, just the solo practice all by itself. If you learn to do it well, you can make heck of a lot of change in your body and free it up and um, really help your quality of life. Thank you, Laura. When I first began working with you one-on-one -on -one and you explained to me the pendiculation and guided and coached me through it, that the slower we release, the more slowly we release from that pendiculation point, the more opportunity there is for healing or release. And um, could you speak to that? Sure, sure. The, um, one of the main in, ingredients in pandiculation is slow motion. Um, uh, and you know how Tai Chi has is slow motion too. Some people nickname this work Tai Chi on the floor. Oh, interesting. Um, so it is, you know, definitely there's some parallels. And Tai Chi has some benefits in terms of, because it's slow motion, aware movement, really listening, really sensing, moving, 
Um, and pendiculation has a couple of other ingredients besides slow motion. And yes, if you slow down, especially that lengthening phase of the muscle and really pay attention and go for detail, you can literally change the signal from the brain and remake the map. If, if you think about um, how we learn things, when we originally learned any movement, I mean, think, you know, like a baby grabbing a hold of the spoon, trying to figure out how to grab it and then how to get it to its mouth or how to put something in its mouth. It took a few tries before the brain figured out, you know, how to coordinate that, those fine motor, motor, uh, sensory motor uh, connections to do that, that, that thing, whatever it is, picking it up and putting it in the mouth. And once it's learned, um, the the top of the brain the cortex has the new learning part of the brain has has done that action soon as it's got it it's learned it it sends it down into the uh, more automatic lower parts of the brain the unconscious parts of the brain where where those maps and habits they're actually habits are stored and then it's ready to learn something new so um by reaching down in the basement, if you will, of, of your unconscious brain and pulling up the maps of a particular movement that has maybe um, has limited range of motion. You know, maybe you had a, an injury or, or a trauma um, that contracted a place on your body. And even long after the injury is gone, you still have the contraction, the imprint. All our history is imprinted on our nervous system, Absolutely. right? From, from emotional events to physical trauma, uh, surgeries, uh, and, you know, even under anesthesia, you know, if a, a, an incision is made, you have an appendectomy, say, for instance, um, then the muscles around that area will cringe. They will, they, will, they will shut down. They'll lock down. They'll shorten. And, and it will remain there and just, you know, be a habit. And then your body's compensating around this sort of wrench in the works of tightness uh, until, until you pendiculate it and, and send it away. And at least I think pendiculation is the kind of most direct, get to the point, change what's going on. There are other modalities and techniques that can help. We actually use some of them in our work, but pendiculation is sort of the king queen of the repatterning techniques just because it, it's so direct. Um, so, and yeah, we're I just, oh, yeah, finish your point, but I, I just, just gonna, I was, it kind of brings in, um, there's a, term that Hannah coined called sensory motor amnesia and it I was, sort of described that's just what I was going to bring up short short uh, the short version of that is SMA right um, sensory motor amnesia is kind of a long word to say so SMA is is that lockdown the brain has forgotten how to has lost some of the control of that muscular area from that injury or whatever caused that shortness it's uh, the muscle doesn't contract very efficiently certainly doesn't lengthen and it may be holding bones tight, it, uh, you know, in out of position. It may be curling a spine either forward or to the side. It may be hiking a hip or twisting a hip. It may be compressing the spine, that sensation that anyone with a scoliosis totally knows what I'm talking about. It may be, um, you know, compressing joints in such a way that there's uh, pain and no movement and, um, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, TMJ and the compression there, you know, it's, there's so many ways it can show up the SMA and it's, it's simply the history imprinted on the body in terms of these contractive patterns. And even though you may have pain in one shoulder, probably the contractive pattern is longer than that going from the neck all the way down the body. And that's, 
as practitioners of this work, that's how we're trained to, to look at what's not moving, you know, what's being held here. And, um, and then slowly by designing movement patterns, uh, and we have excellent protocols to address lots of things that we see, we can um, help to restore the body back to its original mobile self. And then what's happening with these contracted patterns is even when we're sleeping, we're in contraction. So where there's that SMA, that sensory motor amnesia, and there's this contracted pattern, even lying down with the hope that we're going to rest deeply, that pattern is still contracted. So we wake up with the same pain. We wake up and move with the same amnesia. And Thomas Hanna felt that a lot of joint deterioration that developed and would eventually be addressed with surgery, that the joint deterioration was hastened through this amnesia and through these contracted patterns. Is that? Um, yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? That it makes something sense to me. Yeah, right, getting compressed, that the, the joint wouldn't be, uh, biomechanically speaking, it wouldn't be operating correctly, and not enough room, maybe too tight. Uh, I know with scoliosis, sometimes, you know, the, the asymmetries will send the weight into a hip, and, you know, do that for 20 years, and you're going to have a labral tear, or, or osteophytes growing in the hip, you know, it's, or, you know, or trouble with the knee, or trouble with the foot, because, the body isn't moving in the way it was designed to be moved because these contractive patterns are, are messing with the, the, the good potential of, the potentially good biomechanics that it could be restored to. So yeah, let me talk about the reflexes a little bit. This is another thing that, you know, we have reflexes that really are like, you know, Hans Selye was talking about, right? It's our adaptability. It's our response to life coming at you, whatever it is. and um, and there's many, many reflexes at play uh, in our development and all through life. And Tom Hannah kind of honed it down to three main ones in terms of how the body responds to stress and how it can get habituated. And, um, and I'm, I'm actually going to do a, a little demo and a self-pendiculation uh, at some point. Shall I do that now? Yes, show us that. Thank you. And we can, we can demonstrate the, the three reflexes as we do that. Wonderful. Okay. All right. So, so everybody just try this on your own for a moment. Um, place a hand on your belly and one on your back. And these front and back reflexes in the body are our most primary ones. And if you were to inhale and kind of swell your belly forward and contract your lower back, that's the green light reflex. That's the one that moves you forward, gets the job done, right? <laughs> Um, and just let that soften again. Just do that once again. Inhale, expand the front, gently tighten the back. There's the arched back, and notice it brings tension to the shoulders as well. And we need that reflex, of course, to get the job done, right? To move forward and do what we do. But if it gets triggered really often, like that particular kind of stress, like getting it done, deadlines, right? <laughs> then that, that back can get really tight and people that are very driven or push themselves real hard go through life with that kind of attitude and that relationship to their body, they may end up with lower back pain or upper back pain or both and um, very, very tight back there. So that's the green light reflex. We need it 
but if it gets habituated in SMA back there, it can cause pain. So let's look at the opposite one. And yeah, go ahead. one moment. So it's the green light reflex because it's the go, go, go. Yes. So it tends to be if you're that go, 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 get it done, green light, go, go, there's a very high likelihood of being in this green light reflex. Yes, it, there is kind of a personality that goes yes. with it. Not, I wouldn't say 100% of the I time. Volunteer. <laughs> I volunteer. Yeah, I'd say you're a green light lady, Kiki, and, and you definitely... Uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, we'd call you oceans of accomplishment, definitely. <laughs> but yeah, so, so we need that reflex, but it can, can make trouble if it gets too habituated. It's a certain kind of stress that, that you know, locks down the back. So let's look at the other one, the opposite one. Place your hand on your belly and your back again. And now on the next exhale, just exaggerate the sinking in. Exhale, sink the belly in so it tightens a little bit and just notice the back is lengthening. It has to lengthen so the front can shorten, right? And now come on out of that again. Good. So try that again, but place a hand on your chest and your belly. So take a breath in to get ready. And on your exhale, would you exhale and sink round the back a little bit and notice how it pulls the chest down. Now, if I'm keeping my head forward so that I'm seeing you and seeing the world in front of me, what happens to the back of the neck? Oh. Yeah. Can you, can you feel that, that that's part of the red light reflex too, oftentimes, right? Somebody who's short and tight in front and their guts or their chest or their ribs may also be tight in the back of the neck. Now, certain kinds of stress does that. It's, I mean, it's startle reflex, right? Everybody knows that. That's familiar to all vertebrate animals or even invertebrate, I think. If you poke them, they'll, they'll cringe, right? It's, and that, so that's um, natural to all creatures. And so this, if, you know, if a loud noise went off without thinking about it, the front of our body right. would spread it. It's right. like a cringe to fear. So it's a protection reflex, really. Um, trying to like get still and, and be invisible in a way. So it's, you know, it's both of those reflexes can be part of fight or flight or freeze, both of them in different ways. But this one is particularly attributed to uh, emotional uh, stress ongoing. What um, I learned, and, oh, yeah. what I learned about this red light um, that was so eye-opening for me, there's a common idea that like, oh, well, we're texting, we're on our computers all day, our necks are weak. And the understanding that I learned from you and from Thomas Hanna's book is that actually these muscles are incredibly strong. So these shortened muscles the red light, the shortening of these muscles in the red light, actually, this is very strong in here. So just trying to climb out of it without changing the amnesia um, is, is going to hold us there, this incredible strength. And we see it with people if, who are in this. They go to lay on the floor or lay on their bed, and they actually can't lay flat. This is so incredibly strong. So they're propped up with all these pillows supporting this, this shortening, this strength. Right, right. So you just cited some of the other reasons that a body and a nervous system can get habituated, and that is repetitive motion, um, repetitive posture. Uh, so people who, and now it's more and more of us in the last couple of decades, there's so much focus on technology and even little kids, instead of 
getting out and throwing balls. They're, they're curled over a, a computer game or, or playing with, you know, the parents, you know, smartphone. Devices. Yeah, so there's a lot of things that contribute, especially to, to red light habituation nowadays that wasn't true 20 years ago. Um, so, yeah, lots of reasons. And think about the physiological impact. Let's say I'm tied in front from that red light reflex. I tend to be a red light person. That's familiar to me. And it also draws his shoulders in too. So my, my pectoralis in front, my chest muscles um, are also tight. So, I mean, if you hold it there, just, you know, go into that red light reflex for a second and hold it tight and now try and take a deep breath. You know, this, it's very limiting, right? I mean, if you were terribly green light, you also might be limited in the movement of your ribs backwards. It might uh, impair breath as well. So to release the ribs, to teach the front of the body uh, a new resting length, to teach these front of the shoulders how to open up. People come into my office with their shoulders straight forward. I'm going, oh dear. And by the end of it, their shoulders are open and they're looking going, whoa, wait a minute. This feels, it's like, they have a chest and shoulders for the first time. They're not putting them, putting the shoulders there. They, they literally just fall or they have a new resting length, those muscles. The bones go someplace new. So lymphatic drainage goes right through there. It's huge how right. important this is. Cardiovascular health, lymphatic health, more oxygen, etc. They also leave experiencing the joy that connects with this posture because they are breathing because they are released rather than the sorrow the feelings or the fear that automatically tracks the red light the protective fearful red light that fear begins to fall away exactly so that the emotions follow the body language we know it goes the other way right but right yeah, but it's it. The emotions will definitely follow a new body language should you shift your body there. So, and then you don't have to try and stand up straight like your mom said all the time. You can actually just stand up straight because it's where your body wants to go. So, so that's that's the difference of sort of of some other modalities that try and train the body to good posture and try you know, um, and it's an effort placing the body in space as opposed to this work, which goes into what's there. Pendiculation is actually contracting deeper than the tension that's already there. And then you begin to release teaching the brain how to let it go. And um, all the way to an easy length and another breath to make sure you've let it go. So we don't, we never push into pain. That's one of the rules. We never, we don't stretch. You don't need to stretch. Pendiculation is like backwards of stretch and is way the heck better than stretch ever hoped to be. How would you describe stretch? Tell me what you would okay, call stretch. Obviously, you're trained as a dancer. <laughs> I'm sure you've done some yoga along the way. We've Dancers are constantly stretching. Um, so what is a stretch, uh, sort yeah. of physiologically, and then how is this not a stretch? Or why, when would stretching, when and why is stretching inappropriate for pain or making so, things worse. Yeah, some people define stretch as just, you know, just lengthening a muscle. And, and I, I would change that definition slightly. What I mean by stretch is an effort to lengthen the muscle to the point where you start having a sensation of stretch. Now, some people really love that sensation. Some 
you know, I call them stretch junkies, right? They, they're, they're wanting, they're overriding the stretch reflex, which is um, when you go past light stretch into deep stretch, so it's a strong sensation, you're for sure triggering the stretch reflex, which is the brain's reaction. It's, it's, it's like it's responded to a bit of trauma uh, because you're threatening to pull the muscle too far and it goes, I don't think so, and it, it tightens it back up again. So the next day, like if you've ever, you know, ever done some really uh, exertive activity or maybe pushed yourself a bit further in your running or your weight work, and everything goes, ah, the next day it's tight, it's stingy, it, you have soreness. Um, some of the soreness is from micro tears in the muscle, which happens with, with weights and workout. But some of it might be that you've just pushed it a little too far and that stretch reflex has done its thing and, and grabbed it up. Now, when you're talking about muscles that are habituated patterns in the body or you know, a fair amount of injury or a frozen shoulder, stretch isn't going to work because that stretch reflex comes up so quick and it's so easy to make it worse, exacerbate the problem. So that's where these tools come in really handy because we can gently, starting with wherever the truth of the muscle is at that moment, we can help people re-educate these muscles slowly, gradually, and restore their length and their mobility and, and their smartness again um, and without stretching and and hopefully without triggering that stretch reflex at all. So stretch can mean lots of things to many people. And having said that, sometimes, you know, I take some of my, my uh, old dancer stretches and instead of pulling into pain, which of course I wouldn't do, that would be silly, I'll go just to the end of the length. I'll go, there it is. And then I'll maybe tease out the end of the length with pendiculation, which if you get good at this technique, you can play with it in that way. So you can apply this idea to stretch, but it's a much it's a much gentler approach. And then every time we touch pain, we strengthen the limitation <laughs> to move to that place. So it's almost like we imprison ourselves even more with limited movement because the the nervous system is protecting us from pain. Yeah, and your nervous system may not trust you so much if you're constantly hurting it. So there's a whole piece of, you know, your relationship to your body as well. But yeah, if, I mean, if the body experiences pain, it will shorten its muscles. That's what the brain does. That's what it does. Um, yeah. So there's one other reflex I forgot yes. to mention. Um, Tom Hanna named uh, the sides of the body trauma reflex. And he was, I think, mainly referring to physical trauma. Say, for instance, you broke an ankle or you banged your knee up or you fell on your hip or fell on the side of your body or you got that appendix operation, right? then the brain uh, would have cringed up the muscles and shortened one side. And long after the injury is gone, you still got a cringe and you got some asymmetry in, in your body. It may have hiked a hip, it may have pulled down a shoulder, may have twisted you a little bit. And then, then you've got asymmetry and messed up uh, movement mechanics going through the body that affects everything all the way up and all the way down. So, um, so that those side, it can, it can, the trauma can imprint and the SMA can happen on the sides of the body too. And usually if the sides, a side of the body is contracted, it will also cause rotation and torque and twist because of the way the spine is designed. It's just the way it is. So we're going to want to pull our head forward again. Right. And if, you know, and if the head is being pulled 
off center that affects your vision and your eyes and the tension in your jaw and and everything basically so and these this trauma could all this trauma response could also be married to a green light or a red light absolutely there's something he calls the vice dark vice yeah the dark vice I always think of like Star Wars. <laughs> I know, I know. It sounds, it sounds Darth very Vader. I'm like, oh my God, I'm in the dark vice. <laughs> but it is dark. It's really dark. So explain that vice, uh, that dark vice. The dark vice he was describing, sort of uh, the red light reflex and the green light reflex coming together in, in not a good way. It, I see it a lot because people may be green light. <clears throat> they may have tension in their back, but if they're curled over a computer all the time, then the upper body is curled and the back of the neck is contracted too. So you've got kind of two reflexes crashing together there. And it means your body is in a wrestling match. It means nothing can move. And it also tends to compress people down. And it's not, not just the center of the body. It affects the hip flexors and the neck and the arms and the shoulders therefore affecting how the feet move and the biomechanics of how the hands move and the wrists and everything. So a lot of it starts in the center. Um, and yeah, dark vices is, is, a, is a common thing. And you can add some trauma reflex to that too and add a curve and a twist. It happens a lot. <laughs> I went for all of it, Laura. You know, <laughs> I was like, give it all to me. But living in New York City and... Um, when I started working with you and started this work, I just looked at every person. I was like, red light, green light, red light, green light, dark vice. And I looked at older people and um, on their walkers, struggling along the enormous effort to move. And to me, it, you know, I had enormous compassion for how much discomfort there appeared to be in someone on their lowered walker, just figuring out how to move their feet mechanically to go forward because there was an overall amnesia. But also just speaking to that, our inherent desire to move, our inherent desire to to go, to go out, to do our shopping, to be in the park, to be around other people and to see you know the discomfort and the despair and the locking down of the whole um body that can occur if if we don't find our way out yeah 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 we're all you know all of us as somatic educators are constantly seeing people and going Shall I walk right up to this person and give them my card? I really want to, but they think I'm rude. It's like, oh, all you can do not to hand your card to everybody because everybody could use this work and some people desperately need it. You're, you're quite right. Um, you know, when, you know, as you mentioned, somebody, you know, curled forward and locked down or on a walker, um, in, from the model of mainstream medicine, not all of them, there are plenty of enlightened uh, physiotherapists out there and trainers and uh, but most of them I would say still sadly are, are going from the old model and they're only looking at body, bodies in terms of, of strength weakness and um, and they only know what to do about that 
by strengthening or or stretching and there's just this whole other layer which is sensory motor amnesia and the habituation that's going on in other words just to give you an example of this you know someone who's back is very arched and it's pushing their belly forward someone who comes from old school or you know a pt you know or a trainer they might go oh the problem is your belly's too weak but if your back is really tight and maybe your hip flexors too and then you go to like strengthen and if they're strengthening you leaving your muscles short which sadly is the way some trainers work then you've got tight in the front tight in the back tight in the hip flexors and the psoas going through it's a recipe for for trouble. I mean, that's a, that, that means that then when you go to pick up something heavy, you're, you know, you're going to have a herniated disc. A hernia, herniation of a disc is literally a muscular problem, specifically habituation lockdown. So, um, so when I see someone like that, instead of going that their belly's weak, I go, oh, the back muscles in, in any of us in this profession, their back muscles are dominating. If we could create some some new space in there and, and invite the tail to drop by repatterning the muscles in back and maybe the hip flexors in front, then the, the belly kind of comes back onto center. And then the belly muscle will strengthen itself. I mean, we do movements that work with the belly and, and strengthen them, but you know, how can it be a player if one side is, is dominating, right? So it's bringing it back into balance so all the muscle groups and lines of muscle groups can, can be players. And, and work efficiently. And then what we would probably see is someone might have that surgery for the vertebrae um, or the disc, but they're still in the pattern. Right. So yeah, that's going to, it's going to impact their pain, movement, I mean, even though they got the surgery that was supposed to change everything. And sometimes surgery, that people do get the results they're looking for. It depends on what it is. Certainly, surgery can be amazing sometimes. But a lot of times I feel it isn't. I think there's so many situations where if someone could try a non-invasive invasive technique like this and maybe change the cause of the problem in the first place, literally the root of the problem, could it prevent surgery? Quite, quite possibly in some cases. And even if you have to have a surgery, like a hip replacement, if the damage is too far gone, because there's certain kinds of, of cartilage, like the hyaline cartilage and the lining of the hips, hip socket that, that can't regenerate. Fibrous cartilage can, but, but not the hyaline cartilage. So say that's worn down, it's, you know, the surfaces are in really rough shape. That person might literally need a hip replacement. That is the answer. But something like somatic could prepare them for that operation, uh, and then help them re rehabilitate from it afterwards. I've done that with several people. It works beautifully. And it might prevent the second hip from, right. <laughs> from having it because it's taken a lot of wear and tear in the meantime, right? And, and help to bring the body you know, back to uh, functioning more efficiently. I think the living with pain and this dark story, this dark narrative that develops in our mind of, I'm in pain, I have these limitations, I'm sort of hopeless, I've tried everything that there is. The, you know, the voice of the doctor is a very powerful voice. And when that doctor says, you need hip replacement, there's no way out, this is what you need, that's kind of the storybook ending for a lot of people. Like I found the doctor, 
He's given me his word. He's going to get me out of this pain. He's going to put an end to the story. What I found is when someone's made that decision, like I need the surgery, I need the surgery. It's very difficult. You know, my doctor said it's very difficult to have their mind open to trying one more non-invasive thing. Um, so there, there needs to be a way to just get them before that point. Um, but I also think that's why testimonials are also so powerful. If someone can say, no, really, I was where you were, or talk to these other clients of mine, or talk to these other practitioners that have gone through this. Yeah, yeah, we, we definitely collect stories so that people can go, oh, that happened to this person. Here, here's a possibility I haven't heard of. And speaking of not having heard of it, you know, you ask, why isn't this a household word? Right. If it's so good, why don't people know about it? And, and uh, Tom kind of was training his, he had finally, over about a 17-year period, de developed this curriculum to teach his work. And he had a small group of people he was doing that with. And um, even before completing that training, he died in a car accident. And um, Tom Hanna was a very, just from what I can tell, a delicious man, a charismatic and just amazing. I mean, just reading his words, he's a very inspiring guy. Very inspiring. And very passionate. And, and, you know, he died at 62 and he was climbing trees and just a very able-bodied, fluid being. And I think that, I think the fact that he was so amazing and then he was suddenly gone, that took the wind out of the sails of this work. And he had big plans for it. He was going to put clinics across the country, interface with mainstream medicine, connect with doctors, train physiotherapists. Um, that Those were his plans. So it took a long time to kind of, you know, reeling from that tragedy for it, kind of the people to come together and recreate, um, you know, create a curriculum based on what they'd learned. Um, and move it forward. And then there was another institute and, and other independents teaching it. And then, um, and, you know, and like essential somatics is now. And so it's coming forward. And that was, you know, Martha's idea of taking it to the world, you know, that we hope that that's getting it out there faster and slowly, but surely there's still, I don't know if there's thousands of us, there's certainly many hundreds of us, but whether we're thousands yet, I don't know. Probably not. But anyway, so we're a small community, but we're a powerful one. And we're, our passion is to get this information to people because we know it will Well, I, I share the yeah. same passion, Laura. So thank you so much for speaking with me today and sharing as much as you have. I want to open to questions, but if there's anything that you would like to say before we move to questions that, that you would like to add that maybe we haven't included yet. I think if there's anything, any big points I've missed, I'm sure some of my students and our graduates will uh, remind me if, if I've missed anything uh, important, but I just wanted to say that with scoliosis at age 68, I, if I didn't have this work, I'd be in some deep trouble right now. I mean, I, I have those things that come with scoliosis, stenosis, arthritis in certain pieces of the spine, spondylolisthesis, that's an unstable vertebra, various, uh, you know, places in the body that have taken wear and tear because of the scoliosis, not to mention old dance injuries, and I'm able to manage all of them, 
you know, knock on wood, I use pandiculation in my practice with myself to stay close to pain-free um, and sometimes pain-free and able to do what I want to do and travel around and teach this work. And I don't think that would be true without it. I mean, it, it literally saves, saves my butt. Um, well, I can way. see it just how much ease of movement, how much ease you have to express yourself. Your body's very responsive to express with ease. We can see the movement of your breath and, you know, your shoulders go up and down there. No, they don't just go up, Laura. They go up, they go down, you express. You you. So it's certainly visible. And I think, um, obviously, I don't think 68 is old, but um, because I'm almost 10 years younger than you, but um, I'm almost 58. But if we think about, on the whole, what 68 can look like, then we do see a lot of restriction and limitation. And I think you do embody, to my mind, the most beautiful part of um, the somatics book is he really speaks about this kind of agelessness. Because what aging is, is to be limited in our physical ability, to not be able to to move, to make love, to explore the world. And if we lose that, that's aging. And he has such a, that chapter of his on like the freedom of living and human experience that comes through somatics. I would absolutely say you embody that, Laura. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Kiki. Yeah, it's about freedom, isn't it? Freedom on every level. Because if you free the body, that's about freeing the emotional self. And, and actually, the psychological piece is very fascinating to me. You know, all the emotional trauma that happens to a human, that's imprinted in terms of contractive patterns, too. So as we free up these contractive patterns and mobilize a body, we also help people to move forward out of old emotional habits, too, on where, you know, where they live. It all starts in the body, right? So it's, it's a powerful tool um, for change on literally every, every level and... Um, and yeah. Thank you, it's Laura. A happy, it's a happy thing. <laughs> Thank you so much. So I'm so glad that you joined me today and many of your uh, clinical students and practitioners are here too. And uh, so if you have a question um, for Laura, turn on your mic or if you'd like to turn on your video as well if you see how to do that, and we'll just take the first mic that turns on and then move on, or you can put it into the chat panel. Or is everyone all happy? Anyone? I think that's... I know, I know some of them have something to say. They have a lot to say. These guys are I know, I'm sure you brilliant. do. They're amazing. Um, well, turn on your videos just to wave to Laura. <laughs> I'm sure you're joining from all over the world today. Laura is in Norway. Hi there, Karen. And um, everyone can just wave. Thank you for coming out today. And if you have a question, please turn on your mic and ask Laura. No questions, everyone's happy? No, come on guys. Ask me a nice juicy question. There's a question in the chat. 
they said they put a question in the chat. Okay. When do you think this COVID lockdown, oh, what do you think this COVID lockdown has been doing, how it's been impacting our bodies, mm. Laura? You know, I, I expect that's a different, a different thing for different people. For some people, suddenly they lost all their work and they have a lot of free time, which may feel stressful in some ways, but also some freedom they didn't have before, time to think and consider. For other people, if they had kids who are now home from school, they have to homeschool you know, and help with that and work online. And some people just kept working, but you know, we're working online. So for some people, it's a busier time. It just depends. And of course, the fear of infection and a lot of unknowns as it was developing, that's got to be scary and stressful for, for everyone. And how, you know, how does, what reflex does that trigger? Well, you have to ask yourself that. If I'm thinking about being scared of getting sick and, and dying, you know, listen to the somatic response and, and your body to that. Of course, it affected everyone. Um, but, but like any challenge, you know, mother, necessity is the mother of invention, right? So um, I'm sure we've all learned a lot. I know I have a great deal just uh, being home and, and working online and seeing what I can do just with my words and, you know, reaching out to people um, through through the internet and, and working with them one-on-one -on -one and, and also through classes. And I'm, I'm betting some of these wonderful teachers have also made some great discoveries that are eventually going to lead to and give us even more juiciness and more information to give to our hands-on work or our movement teaching in person when that happens later on. So, Laura, I'm going to share uh, your links underneath this video so people can find your group classes on Zoom as well as your uh, have an opportunity to work with you one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, I have I have some classes coming up. Uh, they're on my website. I have a I have a a Saturday class, which can be a drop-in class if somebody just wants to to check out a class. It's very affordable um, on various subjects. Very affordable. Laura used to say to me, well, you know, if you buy several sessions, it's like $8 cheaper. It's like, I want to give you the $8. <laughs> it's too cheap already. <laughs> the value of the work is so great, and the way that you share it is so great as well, Laura. Yeah. And so I have a... Like, a basic series for beginners starting this Monday, the 15th, and I have um, a workshop focusing on scoliosis in particular, both people that, that have that, that are dealing with those issues, as well as for uh, practitioners and movement teachers just wanting to, to jam on that subject and get some movement material and strategies for scoliosis. Um, so yeah, and, and one of the things, one of the links I gave was um, a, an interview that uh, Iris Barlev, who's, who's there with us today, she's from Israel, she's one of our, our brilliant students and who's studying in the UK uh, with us, and she uh, did this great interview with me last module, and, and I, I put it on there because she asked such, of course she asked fabulous questions, and she was a really great interviewer, and so I thought that might be just a little, uh, you know, short, I forget how long it is, but it's, you know, 20 minutes or half an hour, but for people I'll share to... that as well. Thank you, Iris. I'll share that as well. And actually, I have a question for Laura. Hi, Laura. Hi, Iris. Thanks for coming on and supporting. Don't you have a good juicy question for us? Yes, I do. Oh, good. I knew you would. 
as as a as a practitioner, a somatic practitioner myself, I meet a lot of people with very very um, acute pain all the time. Their their life is pain, and then they're introduced to somatic movement, which is very soft and very gentle and, and very uh, inner exploration movement. And they can't enjoy it because their brain is occupied by pain. And I would just like you to refer to this question and, and enrich us in every way you can. Yeah. I mean, as far as working with traumatized clients, you're, you're possibly the expert on this, Iris. Because you live in Israel, it's often a war zone. Like, you know, living there comes with a lot of stress just built in. A lot of people have been actually in battle and um, uh, you know, experienced the, the trauma of war because you're right there in the middle. So I, you, we, I, I always think about, you know, wow, are you doing great work in Israel where people need this so badly? And, and I, th you know, how, how much good they can get out of this. I'm sh I know, I mean, you've told me experiences of working with these clients and moving them forward. And it's, it's a rather different story than someone who just has some chronic pain or an old injury. You're really helping them find their way into a new world and a new relationship with their body and away from that habit of pain and living with pain. So, and it sounds to me like you're doing it brilliantly. You bring a lot of interesting background to this work. Thank goodness you're really um, a lifesaver for, for your clients. So um, in some ways, this is more your expertise expertise than it is is mine it's gradual right it's just a little bit at a time and they make the discoveries they have to make them on their own how how the the schedule of change unfolds for everybody is completely unique and for somebody like that like the client you're describing it might be a long time and maybe they'll never get completely out of pain but if you could at least improve their quality of life a little bit or giving giving them some tools some choices that they didn't have before, you know, that's good too. So I guess it's all relative to where they're starting from. In the yoga philosophy, as regards transformation and self-transformation, um, which of course impacts communities, what's essential to transformation is faith and hope that it's possible. And you know, this somatic work, the somatic practitioners can hold out, can offer to those around them, there is hope, there is hope. Just have faith um, because there is a pathway, it does exist. Other people got to the other side, there is a place. So hope is there, keep the faith. And the philosophy goes on further to say, you have to remove the doubt, right? So in order to keep the faith, we have to remove the doubt. So having the hope, theoretically knowing it's possible and just removing that, those self-doubts as we encourage others forward uh, is so powerful. But when we're in a doubting world or a fighting world or a fractious community, we lose hope. Um, and we lose faith. So to have that beacon as a practitioner, as a community guide or leader, um, as a community healer, we're holding out that hope and we're um, drawing people to have 
to remove their doubt and come on there's, board. There's another aspect to it too, like someone who, who's in under a great deal of stress all the time and maybe they've been there so long, they, they're just stuck in a, a reactive stress mode, even when maybe the stress isn't there, right? The authentic stress, maybe they're stuck in a mode of negativity or, or fear because it's just been a habit for so long or from a lot of trauma early on. And for those people, I, I think I, I sometimes talk to people in terms of, you know, just, just think about, you know, what that thought does to you. What's your somatic response? You know, what, what's running your brain right now, right? And if you could just give yourself a little break, even if it's real, uh, real actual stress in your life, could you just take a moment and give your body, your nervous system, a break from that stress voluntarily, just going, push, put the world on pause for a minute. I'm going to work with myself in this loving, conscious way and maybe lower my cortisol levels a little bit, maybe calm my system a little bit. You can teach the nervous system new settings. For some people, that can take a while, others more quickly, but it, it, it's a powerful tool that you know, you can use, just like you're saying, you get on the subway, you're hurting, you're going, wait a minute, I know what to do about that. And you begin to pendiculate it. So, um, so I think that's valuable, even for someone who has been kind of stuck in a stressful mode for a long time, or who has sort of ongoing actual stress, inescapable stress, because that's the case for some folks. So this is just a little moment, a little break, a somatic snack to, to give, take you away from whatever it is. And that's, and that's health giving in itself. Absolutely. Thank uh, you so I much. I would like to add, I would like to add, as, as you said, Laura, uh, people who experience pain all the time, there is some trauma there. And working with trauma is starting to differentiate. Not everything has to be under the category of pain. There are different pains and starting to, to differentiate and, and sense it's not always just the category, the category of pain, but there are, are sub, sub sensations that we can be aware of. So the, the experience is gradually shifting yeah, I'm hoping you're going to write a book on this someday, Iris, because you're right there in the trenches with the most stress of anybody. Anybody else got something um, to say? Yeah, I have a question. Laura, can you hear yeah. me? Yes, Is we that can. Yeah. Yes. Hi. Hi, Laura. I, when you were talking about stretching, um, I think I didn't fully understand. You said that some people really enjoy stretching. They're kind of stretch junkies. So I wasn't understanding, is it that it's not good for the body to stretch or is it that it's not good to stretch past a certain point? If you could just explain that. Well, I mean, this kind of, you have to figure this out for yourself and your own body. But I, I know, um, here's an example. One guy came to me once who loved his yoga. He wasn't about to give up his yoga, but he was in pain. And he told me he couldn't do a lot of, of the asanas, the postures. He couldn't do them because it gave him pain. And so he started taking classes with me regularly. And after a few months, um, he stopped and I wrote him and I said, so Boris, what's the deal? Did it help? And he said, oh yeah. He says, I do a short set of somatics, maybe 10, 15 minutes before my yoga class. I have more ease and range of motion to begin it. And I can do the postures that I couldn't do before. 
What he didn't tell me, but what I knew was true, was that he had also shifted his relationship to his body. He wasn't pushing, trying to make his body do something, pushing himself into pain. He was listening to his body because that's what somatics does, right? It, it, it wakes up that self-sensing aspect of the intelligence hugely. So he was now taking care of himself better and li probably listening for how far to stretch and not going too far, I'm betting, because he wasn't hurting himself anymore. Um, so, so there's that, right? It's, it's like how much to stretch is greatly affected by what you can sense and what you're looking for. And if you're, um, yeah. Now, I, I just remember when I was a dancer, I would try to do like long, intense stretches and it always threw my muscles into spasm. And I thought, well, this isn't working for me. Maybe, maybe it's just me. But, you know, after running into this work, I'm going, mm, maybe not. Maybe my brain was making a lot of sense and giving me really clear signals. It doesn't mean that I don't lengthen my muscles. I, I like to move. I still dance a tiny bit. And, um, but, but I would be, you know, I wouldn't go into deep sensation of stretch because I know what will happen. So, uh, and I understand pendiculation and it's more fun and feels good and my results are better. So, you know, in a way you have to kind of use your own gorgeous brain, nervous system, body, muscles, bones, as your laboratory and put it to the test and see what you think. You're, you're just sort of at the beginning of this work and you seem to be getting some good results, but you know, after a year of doing it, tell me what you think. I'd, I'd really like to know what your experiment gives because that's the best way, right? Just to prove it, don't believe me, prove it on yourself. And then they, actually I have another question. Um, you were mentioning uh, something about the TMJ. Do you also do it for the jaw, the pendiculation and this kind of work? You can, you can pendiculate any muscle in the body, literally. And absolutely, um, the TMJ can be, you know, like a trauma to the jaw, or it can be just a reflection of a contractive pattern uh, further down in the body that's just, you know, making an asymmetry or a tension on one side and pulling the jaw askew. Um, or it can be from, you know, intense, the trauma, dental work, lots of things can cause it. And yes, absolutely, you can, you can change, um, you know, restore more movement in the jaw. Um, and we, we do that with this work all, all the time. Yeah, absolutely, we can. And, and if you'd like to experiment with that in a session we do together, we can do it. It's yeah, or well, uh, include it in one of your classes even, because you yes, know how to focus on this and on that, and you could maybe do one for the, like this yeah. part of the body. <laughs> And we will, we will at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can pendiculate the jaw beautifully. You have to be quite gentle with it. Um, but it's, it's important. A lot of tension can gather here. It's one of the strongest muscles in our body, this masseter, right? It's, we're talking, we're chewing all the time. It's powerful, but it can, it can get habituated and short. Absolutely. So for various reasons. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for asking the question. Thank you, Laura. Thanks. You're a wonderful educator and a highly skilled practitioner. And thank you so much for meeting us here today. And um, I look forward to everyone that watches this to really have an opportunity to work with you and to also look at Thomas Hanna's book on somatics. Um, it's easily available from any online bookstore. And it's, it has a beautiful mission the mission of the work is, is really about human liberation and self-expression and freedom and joyous living. And thank you for doing your part with that, Laura.
Yeah, and just, just to say, Tom Hanna was uh, an author of uh, many books, in fact, um, and a publication on somatic research. So there's, there's, there's a lot out there that he wrote, and uh, it's, it's fun reading. And I would definitely say that, um, you know, so much of the joy that I experience in my life now and so much more travel and, like, hard work that doesn't feel hard, it just feels joyous, is because I found my way to your table and to your um, passionate and experienced and gifted um, work. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you, Kiki. Thanks for interviewing me and, and telling your story too. That's really great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you everyone for joining today.